Welcome to Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. I am your host, Lori McGraw. I have spent the past 30 years in leadership, and over the years, I've come to learn one thing. Women need women, and not just any women, but inspiring women. Tune in every week to hear from women at the pinnacle of their careers and from others who are just starting out. Episodes can be found at inspiringwomen.show or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening, and I hope you will be inspired. I'm Laurie McGraw. You're listening to Inspiring Women. We're doing something different this year. We're doing a YouTube channel. So please subscribe and hear new episodes every week of Inspiring Women telling their stories with an intention to inspire others as they look to make their impact in this world. This week, episode 112, we're talking to Adamika Arthur. She's the founding director of Health Tech for Medicaid. You're gonna hear several things from Adamika, including a little primer about Medicaid. 57 years old, serves 80 million, one out of five Americans. And talk about, she'll talk about some of the work of Health Tech for Medicaid, almost five years, not quite old, and they've already seen both a sea change in terms of the interest in Medicaid, whether it's regulation or the racial reckoning that's gone on in this country or the pandemic, as well as what Health Tech for Medicaid has done to humanize the face of Medicaid with their storytelling, their programs, um, their education, and their advocacy. We'll also hear from Adamika about what she does to take care of herself, giving herself grace and space to do her best work as she intends to make an impact and make this world a better place. Don't forget, subscribe to Inspiring Women for more stories. Now, let's hear from Adamika. This is Inspiring Women, and I am Lori McGraw, and today, very excited because I'm going to be speaking with Adamika Arthur. Now, Adamika, um, affectionately known as Madam Medicaid, she is the founding executive director of Health Tech for Medicaid, which is now five years old um, and is really there to support innovation and new opportunities to serve the needs of 87 million Americans on Medicaid. Adamika, thank you for being on Inspiring Women. Thank you for thinking I'm inspiring. You are inspiring, Adamika. <laughs> you are very inspiring. You know, before we dive in, let me just like start with a story. I want to talk about the time I first met Adamika and knew that I needed to get her on Inspiring Women. We were at a conference together and there was a very prominent woman from a very large company talking about health equity, um, talking about all these great things that this large company was doing. And I'm sitting next to Adamika and she was just like, yeah, well, what about this? And what about like, you know, the 70 million people who don't have access to that? And she just had all of these comments. And I'm like, who is this woman? So we got to talking and Adamika is a passionate advocate for doing more and better for people who need the services and opportunity for best health outcomes. Adamika, what are you doing today? What's your day-to-day -day look like at Health Tech for Medicaid? Uh, well, we are four years old. We don't turn five until November, and I need all of those months to get us to a five-year milestone. But, um, you know, I started my career as an epidemiologist, so I'm really rooted in a public health framework, and I think sometimes that explains my passion and my population health focus. Um, 
through the 1115 waiver in the state of California, which is how I somehow got to be known as Madam Medicaid, because that was the fundamental legislation that helped the ACA expand Medicaid. Um, California was the first state to expand Medicaid in 2005. That was $180 million that got split between 10 counties. I worked in Alameda County at the time, which is one of the, it's about the 20th largest county in the country, seventh largest county in California. Um, but incredibly diverse county, um, probably one of the most diverse in the country then and now. Um, and that money that, um, you know, kind of I helped author and bring in um, actually transformed my career. I met this, you want to talk about inspiring person, people. Um, I met this first time CEO. He was our 11th CEO in 12 years at the Alameda County Medical Center, which now is called Alameda Health System. And there are people you meet in your life where you either realize like, I just want to be in this person's orbit. I want to work for this person, or I want to like continue to be inspired and fed by this person. And, um, he, I have many of those people in my life and I still like, I think I, um, wake up to, and I've met some of those people, you know, on, on bus corners and, um, inside of our correctional facilities and all over the place. So I can be inspired by many folks, but uh, Wright Lasseter III was the very first hospital leader that I ever worked for. And actually, um, you know, I, we were having a conversation and one of the things he said was like, well, you know, I said, well, I'm bringing all this money to, to your organization. I should just come work for you. And he was like, well, but you're not a hospital leader. And I was like, but I am now. <laughs> um, so that kind of ethos has been excuse me, in my bones from the very beginning. It's like a little bit of like, what is next? Um, and how can I help contribute? How can I make the world better? I firmly believe I was put on this earth to, um, to make this place a better place. So in that, in that like level of responsibility comes passion, enthusiasm, um, probably in some cases, toxic optimism. Um, but it's really for the, um, to improve the quality and duration of individuals' lives, for sure. Well, passion, enthusiasm, and dogged determination to make an impact. And I've seen that. I've seen that in the conferences that you've led, in conversations that you've had with others, where you're holding others to task to do more and to do better. Um, so let's talk about your vision for serving the underserved, because your commitment to the Medicaid population um, is absolutely evident um, in everything that you do. But what's the vision? And so, you know, why should everyone um, feel the way that you do? That it's not just um, it's not just important. It's actually a human right to have dignity and healthcare and access. So, just let's give you an opportunity to talk about that vision, Adamika. So the first thing is, um, because I'm an epidemiologist, I like to measure things. And that's really how I got to Medicaid itself. Um, it, it's a contained group of people who are the largest insured population in this country. So oftentimes we do in these debates in this country about who's insured, who's not insured, right? This is a way to say these are people with insurance in this country. So back by saying you're right, humanity is really probably my interest people that are vulnerable um, have the same like kind of attainment of health. And there's a lot of historic and systemic reasons for that in this country. Also, I think a passion around Medicaid due to its history. Started 57 years ago 
it is the reason why many clinicians of color in this country can actually practice medicine. Um, so even when, um, because it allowed for them to have a patient base. Mm -hmm. And so even when, you know, docs 57 years ago, most docs of color, certainly black doctors certainly had to go through the basement or go through the colored entrance to come into the hospital system. Medicaid was a, <clears throat> was an opportunity for them to actually start seeing their own community where it wasn't door to door, um, in rural communities or kind of bartering for cabbages and, or, you know, people's life savings, right? So it was an entryway and it was the first like radical act in some cases of um, access to care um, in America. So that, that my passion for Medicaid really starts with, um, you know, kind of my understanding of the history. But, um, you know, the reason why I believe most people should care is it's it's more than a fifth of Americans, right? It, it is literally our community, right? It is our family members, our caregivers. It's our community. It makes up the framework. Uh, you give me a city in this country that doesn't have somebody who lives on Medicaid, I would be shocked. Um, in the state of California where I live, there's over 14 and a half million people on Medicaid. That's that's like one in three people that I run into at the grocery store and the Costco line, you know, um, are on Medicaid. So it is. Yeah, I, I didn't know that history. I didn't, I didn't actually know that it was 50. I mean, that context is really helpful in terms of how you're grounding us um, with that. Let's talk a bit about the innovation because health tech sure. for, for Medicaid, your organization, four years old, going on five, is um, it's about innovation in, in requiring that we need more innovation to serve one out of every five <clears throat> Americans. So maybe just talk a bit about what Health Tech for Medicaid sure. does and some of the things that you're perhaps proud of um, that's been accomplished so far, because there's many of those. Yeah, sure. So the first thing is we, you know, Health Tech for Medicaid as, a, as an organization is really dedicated to supporting innovation in Medicaid. Um, and that is to improve quality, equity, and access to care for all Medicaid recipients, their families, and the communities that we live in, because that will ultimately make all of us healthier. We call ourselves a mission-based market enabler, which means that we're mission first. So the people that we center our work on, everything in our work is centered on the quality and duration of people's lives. There are people behind everything that we do. It is not companies making money. It is not, you know, disrupting venture capital systems, but we believe that it takes a cross-sectoral collaborative set of partnerships, public-private partnerships, many others, to actually innovate in this large structure of a system called Medicaid. And so we are a convening body. Our idea is to use thought leadership, right, to radically help change the pace of innovation. Um, we do that best through um, innovative program service delivery. And I can talk to you a little bit about some of our programs, some of our ethos that we've started with. All, the other thing is around education, right? providing people information about Medicaid. Even though a fifth of Americans are on Medicaid, most people do not understand Medicaid itself. Most clinicians mm -hmm. don't understand Medicaid. Um, and so we've built this infrastructure and this ecosystem to actually bust myths, right? To give facts and information and about an ever complicated and ever evolving health system. It's trillions of dollars. It's a $950 billion industry right now. Um, 
And so, you know, that comes with a whole set of complications. It is a state and federal partnership. So there is a state ceiling and a federal floor, which means that federally we have a set of standards. And then depending on where you live, what state or district or territory you live in, that is a ceiling. So Medicaid in the state of California looks very different than across the border in Oregon or on the side of it going into Nevada or down, you know, well, down yep. beneath is Mexico, but nonetheless, it's done 56 different ways in this country. That should not be a hangup. That should be an opportunity. It means that we have opportunities to demonstrate incredible ways to change, test different populations. We know that Texas and Rhode Island look different and Maine and you know Miami or you know like Maine and Florida look completely different, right? And so um, that's a little bit of what we do. And so we also do issue and policy advocacy. Now we are a 501c3 organization. We do not do any lobbying, but in order to create change, it requires our main stakeholders, our entrepreneurs, payers, like, um, and that's traditional and non-traditional payers, providers, policymakers, advocates, investors, but most importantly, people on Medicaid, their caregivers, their families, and the community. Yeah. And, you know, Adamika, I attended your JP Morgan fantastic conference um, that you had. I attended it virtually. And once again, stellar information coming from all of those different sectors. And one of the most interesting ones to me, and not interesting, like academically interesting, but like piercingly, emotionally, um, you know, in your face were the patient stories and the story of the mother talking about her child who did not have access and she lost her child and just the differences that she had to experience the racism that she had to experience, the judgment, um, and then the terrible outcome. And she called herself a mourning mother. And I will just say, you know, as someone um, listening to that, it was uh, the piercing reality, which is not my reality, was very effective. And I know that that's part of what you do is to bring the reality of one out of five Americans to everyone's viewpoint. So maybe there's so much that you've accomplished in the years that you've put together this organization, maybe one or two highlights of progress that you've made that you're proud of, you think that sort of like gives us a vision into what potential future. So I, I guess I'll give two great examples. So one is we've been able to humanize Medicaid. One of the biggest pieces of work that we do when we started this way was really looking at principles of equitable and inclusive design for us to really start thinking about how do we design our products? How do we design our services? How do we design our delivery system? And that requires us to look at our biases straight in the face. And you talked about a tactic we have often done really well. Um, which is we really give you the true story of what this is. It's easy to say like, oh yeah, well, it doesn't really impact me. Well, you know where it does impact? Um, I, I'll never forget a colleague. I, in the early days, I used to, the night before a, a talk or something, take the state Medicaid program application and print it up in my hotel room. And uh, I was kind of known for this the first year. I would tape that together and Santa scroll it. And then in the middle of my talk, I would roll it down in a very dramatic fashion. And, and that sounds kind of silly, right? Because you think, well, how long can these applications be? But the average 
application is well over 200 pages. I will never forget being in Michigan, 573 pages that I rolled down the scroll. And I'll never forget this gentleman who came up to me. He worked at HHS and he was appalled, right? Like, why would you, you know, why is this your tactic to be so dramatic or, you know, like almost like blast the blasphemy of, 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 of doing this. But I'm like, you know, if you're low literacy or you don't speak English or, I mean, you've been oppressed by our systems of education in this, I mean, this country, I, I mean, getting an ID is difficult enough. Voting is super hard in this country, but filling out Medicaid is you, it requires more than a PhD. Mm-hmm. The one thing I loved about that story is two years later, right before the pandemic, I was in Washington and I think my team had put online that I was in Washington speaking at a meeting and he called me, called my, who texted me on my cell phone. He said, I'd love to meet with you for coffee. And I remembered him and I thought, okay, well, I'm now going to get, you know, like I'm not doing the dramatic <laughs> scroll thing anymore. So maybe it's like, good job for getting rid of that. And I met with him briefly for coffee, kind of outside of the HHS building. He had a um, adult son who was at that time 24 and um, severely autistic. Now, he never told me that in the beginning. So he had a child who qualified for Medicaid to begin with. Um, Him and his wife as a part of their estate planning and trying to uh, elucidate independence for their child. You know, he was in a very different system several years earlier and now needed to be an independent adult. And he said, I have a PhD. My brother is a lawyer. My wife and I had to get outside help to help us with this application. It was Mm -hmm. the hardest thing I ever had to do. And he works for the government. And that to me was like the aha moment that sometimes until you are faced with this yourself, you don't really understand or appreciate the extreme reality of how difficult it is to even just get on the Medicaid program, right? That's one thing. So the one thing is the personal story. So we center ourselves in the storytelling And in the narrative change around who you think is on Medicaid, people often call me, hey, Anamika, can you find me a Medicaid member uh, in Georgia who's pregnant or who had her children on Medicaid? Well, I know what they're expecting. So I give them a woman um, who's on Medicaid. She's a white woman with a PhD on Medicaid, had both of her children on Medicaid, right? And they're like, well, wait a minute. Well, she's getting her postgraduate degree right? And this is her life and her reality. She's been in school for, and she was in an abusive relationship. And so she's not partnered. And this is her situation. Part of the reason why we've done our work in spaces. So like everything is designed. Our first few JP Morgans that you talked about, we're at Glide Memorial Church, uh, the TNDC. This year was at the San Francisco Theater. You think about like the San Francisco Playhouse, but most actors in this country are on Medicaid because it's mm-hmm. not consistent work that allows you to have, I mean, yes, some people make it big and are on Broadway and have a sustained living. But if you look at SAG and you look at uh, like most people are living paycheck to paycheck, job to job, thing to thing. It is actually built into the framework of this country that some people have different opportunities than others. Some industries have different opportunities than others. Many entrepreneurs are on Medicaid, right? Mm-hmm. So so that's one piece. So one is around the education, the myth busting, the changing um, of our reality, 
The second really is about watching the sea change. When we started, like IRM and Toyin at City Block had just got their alphabet check like two months earlier, right? We now have all of these companies interested in Medicaid. Now, some for different reasons, right? Because now we have regulations that are asking around equity. We had a pandemic. We had a racial reckoning kind of, I guess, with George Floyd, yep. right? And so street has adjusted with this current administration. And so states have equity plans and CMS has a health equity plan. And so there's there's a recognition and a reality which is allowing people to run at the opportunity. But I will tell you, now Medicaid's a $950 billion industry. It was a $650 billion industry when we started. Right. This is not a good, yeah, this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. So Uh, it it could be that, and I am happy that there is recognition that we've helped um, folks understand that it's viable, but it is a necessary to be. And so that is why when you heard this year, our word is disrupt, we're doing that three ways, um, disrupting through determinants. So moving beyond just social determinants, political, economic, environmental, ecological, right? We are moving um, designing with dignity, which has been a part of our framework from the very beginning. How do we talk about if you're a Medicaid entrepreneur, are you hiring people on Medicaid? If you're a VC, are you making sure that that you um, are asking teams, are they diverse or or looking at independent board seats being uh, diverse? If you're an LP, are you pushing your venture funds to do more, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. If you're in PE, so like changing the ecosystem and that really moves into our other area, which is um, disrupt with dinero, which is money. Change yeah. our Changing our payment systems, working within new structures and yes, saving money and increasing um, outcomes, but really looking at those outcomes with um with that is actually at a place of granulation where people's lives are changing. Yeah. Um, and that's just aggregated data. Well, Anamika, the vision is large and the impact is real. And one of the things that is also so obvious is just your passion and commitment to all of this. So I know we've talked about health tech for Medicaid. I know we're running out of time. So I want to go to the place where you don't like to talk about, let's talk about you. And (laughs) it's also pretty well known that in terms of the burden of changing the status quo in the areas of health equity, serving on people who don't have the access and means as others, and which is your life's work, um, it's often often falls to often falls to women it often falls to women of color and the level of burnout and self-care and all of those things um, becomes a secondary if anything uh, type of thing so my question to you is how do you keep your own personal balance where do you put yourself first and maybe either advice to others and whether it's lived advice that you follow or not I'd just love to hear your perspective on that sure So I will say, you know, being an epidemiologist who's black in this country is kind of rare. Being a black woman who runs hospital systems, incredibly rare. Being a black woman who runs a nonprofit, this is the most difficult job I've ever had. It is very hard to raise money in these structures. I have to bow to uh, philanthropy and many others and system change. So being a social entrepreneur, which is what I am, right? I don't have equity in a company. I'm not making millions. I actually took well, I mean, I, 
an insane pay cut, right? <laughs> to doing this sort of work. It is, it, you know, I always say my, I'll really know Medicaid soon because my two kids will be on Medicaid and I'll really deeply understand it. Um, it's a huge personal and professional sacrifice at, at a, a prime time in my life, right? Like if you look at, you know, being almost 50 years old in this country, it's, it is the time I actually need to be earning and, and growing and performing. But I do believe this is really what I was put and designed to be on this earth and you to do this work. I am, anyone who knows me well, I'm r relentless about my self-care practices, specifically um, my ability to pour into and be poured into and fed by uh, my sisterhood. There I have lots of people who um, are men of all sorts of different races and um, who pour into me and I, and I receive that. But my daily practice is I wake up every day and I go outside physically. It doesn't matter what I mean, I don't live in Montana like you do, but I live in California, but I do travel a ton. So that sometimes means freezing cold temperatures um, or extremely hot temperatures. But I run usually in the morning and I um, really enjoy an incredible espresso. It's like my favorite thing in the world. And then I have time for prayer. Like my life is really... Um, mediated by my faith first, my family second. I have two beautiful black boys who I am desperately trying to raise my husband. Um, and then, you know, I think my work and my service and kind of comes underneath that. Um, so I surround my, myself with people. I also am constantly inspired and I'm inspired by tons of different things. And so I give my myself a chance to learn I listen to podcasts. I read a ton. Um, I am often really inspired by very different industries and people doing very different things. Like yesterday, I was learning about um, the polymer science of concrete that's changing, right? So um, who, I just, is I, who is it? Who is it? This morning, you know, it was a podcast specifically um around, you know, the global ESG movement and how, um, you know, uh, policy markets, capital markets to have a more just and sustainable world. So sometimes it's very aligned to who I am. And other times it's literally just listening. Um, and I'm inspired by people. The stories of people keep me going. I can meet people anywhere on the school playground, at Starbucks in the line, um, you know, in a food pantry as I'm, I'm, I'm doing service work. So I think those are the things that kind of drive me and keep me sane. But I also check in with myself. If it's not a day I'm feeling great, I do what I can do to like manage for the moment. Um, you know, eat comfort foods and drink more water or take a walk outside or um, I am not a hundred percent all the time. And I think it's impossible to, to think that you will be. Um, but I always wake up the next day, you know, fighting for, I mean, I want this world to be better for my kids and for my children's children, hopefully if I ever get to see them. Um, but I also want to do it on behalf of my ancestors. You know, my dad, um, who are here really like has inspired me. He was a militant, no black history. And so the history of Medicaid through a different lens than other people see it, um, and so I'm also here for people who've been here before me. My family helped build this country um, as, um, you know, forced immigrants that came here many years ago. And so I feel like it's my personal responsibility to build this country up to be better and better. 
Well, I think Adamika, this is a great place to close out. This conversation is an inspiring women conversation. You are an inspiring women, woman yourself. And just that you take inspiration from others. I think many people are going to take inspiration from you that you give yourself. I think it's called grace and space to <laughs> not be a hundred percent on all the time as you are on right now. And your passion is clearly coming through. And I just also want to say publicly, you know, and to the audience list listening to this. Thank you. Thank you for the work that you're doing, leading, charging, and, and actually holding all of us accountable to do more and better um, with an intention and purpose of making this world a better place. So thank you for that. This has been a great inspiring women conversation. I've been speaking with Adamika Arthur and Adamika. Thank you thank so you. much. Thank you very much. This has been an episode of Inspiring Women with Lori McGraw. Please subscribe, rate, and review. We are produced by Kate Cruz at Executive Podcast Solutions. More episodes can be found on inspiringwomen.show. I am Lori McGraw, and thank you for listening.